0: And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I want to ask the question this morning, where is Jesus? How can we tangibly know and experience him? All of us, of course, confess that Jesus is risen. He's alive. He continues to be powerfully present with his people. But what is this? Is this just an inner feeling? Is it an emotion, some type of experience of peace that we have? I mean, we are embodied people after all which means that our knowledge of God, our experience of God, our fellowship with God cannot bypass our physical bodies. So where am I to go? What am I to do in order to know, to experience, to have relational communion with Jesus? Have you ever had moments in your life where this was your deepest question? Maybe during a spiritually dry season, where your prayers seem small and difficult. Maybe in a moment of suffering or tragedy. Or maybe in a co- moment of confusion over God's direction for your life and your, his purpose for your life. Maybe for your family, and you've just wondered, where is Jesus? Where is he? How do I know him? I think this is one of the main questions that our text this morning addresses in Luke 24. It's certainly the question that the two disciples are wrestling with on the Emmaus Road as they're struggling to make sense of Jesus' shameful death on the cross, the report then that they've heard from the women about the empty tomb, and now their seemingly vanquished hopes that the one that they had thought would restore Israel has been crucified and has vanished now from their midst. So I hope for at least this morning it will be your question too. Where is Jesus? How can I know and experience him? Jesus, let me just press into this a little more. Jesus is not physically present with us in the way that we would typically think, right? We don't see him with our eyes. We don't, I would venture most of us don't hear him speak to us audibly. We don't touch him with our hands. In other words, all of the typical ways in which humans generally would communicate with one another, verbal communication, visual communication, physical communication, do not characterize our relationship with and, and knowledge of Jesus. Jesus is in heaven and we're waiting for his return where our fellowship will be perfected, where our faith will give way to sight. But in the meantime, as Jesus is in heaven and we wait for him, what are we to do? How can we know and experience Jesus? Let's go back to Luke 24 and look at verse 13 and 14 one more time we'll work through the text together. Notice again right, how Jesus resolved this problem and answered the question for the two of his disciples in the Gospel of Luke. That same day in verse 13, we see that their two disciples are going to a village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're talking with each other about everything that had just happened. It's hard to imagine what they were experiencing. Maybe they were recalling those celebratory hymns of Mary and Zechariah from Luke 1 and Luke 2 when they received word that God was sending his Messiah. And they reminded one another, remember Mary's hymn? Remember when she praised God and said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. He's looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He's helped his servant Israel. He's remembered his mercy according to the promise that he made to his ancestors and to Abraham. Maybe they were talking about some of Jesus' dramatic healings. Maybe they were talking about The the man who lived among the tombs, who lived a life of death. And Jesus gave him new life and returned him to his family in his right mind. Maybe they were reminding themselves of Jesus' incredible teachings. Remember the stories he told about God's forgiveness of the sinner, the outcast, the lost? Remember the story he told about the wayward son who returned to his father and his father reconciled with him maybe they were talking about all of those festive festive and joyous meals that they shared with Jesus remember the meal that Jesus had with Zacchaeus remember how we used to eat and drink and talk about the kingdom of God with one another and almost certainly they wept the one who did and had taught all these things had now died the most shameful death imaginable Now the one that they had placed all of their hopes in was gone, absent, relationship seemingly irreparably broken. But the women who had gone to the tomb had come back with an incredible report, a report that seemed to them something like a fairy tale. They said the tomb was empty, Jesus' body wasn't there. Two angels at the tomb had declared that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and Peter confirmed it saying the tomb was empty and that Jesus' burial clothes were all that remained. Where is Jesus? Is he dead? Is he alive? How can we know and communicate with him? Well, as their confusion and as their grief continues to grow and as they continue to discuss the events that have taken place, Jesus, in verse 15 and 16, it says, came up, and started walking alongside them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Irony of ironies, right? The disciples are recalling all of these events that have taken place about Jesus. They might be arguing over the meaning of these events and their significance. They're asking, where is Jesus? And then Jesus starts to journey with them on the road to Emmaus. We would think the resolution of the tension of the story should be over now at this point, right? Jesus was absent, now he's present. In fact, Jesus is doing right now precisely one of the things that he had done throughout the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us for almost 10 chapters, right, Jesus was journeying away from home. Jesus was one who was born away from home. Jesus was one who relied upon hospitality and food from others in his ministry, He described himself as the foxes have their holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head because he is a journeyer and a wanderer. And for 10 chapters from Luke 9 to Luke 19, Jesus journeys from village to village. Jesus is right in front of them doing exactly what he had done throughout his ministry, and yet for some reason their eyes are kept from recognizing him. Now, if this had been the first time you'd heard the story, uh, maybe the obvious question I think you'd have would be, if the bodily presence of Jesus, whereby he can talk with his disciples, be seen by his disciples, and be touched by his disciples, if this doesn't reveal his identity to them, then whatever will? In other words, how are the disciples ever going to see to recognize, to know, and to communicate with Jesus if they don't even recognize him. His physical presence before their eyes, his act of journeying, which he had done over and over again in his ministry, doesn't reveal his identity to his disciples. So what will resolve the tension? Well, the tension grows even further as the disguised or hidden Jesus asks them a question. All right, in verse 17 he says, what are you discussing together? as you walk along. Maybe he says, sounds like you're having a pretty serious discussion. What's it about? Can I join in? More ironies in verse 18 as Cleop- Cleopas asks him, are you the only stranger? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have recently taken place? Right? So Cleopas is going to give Jesus right, a lesson basically in his own identity here. The blindness of the disciples, the inability of the disciples to see Jesus right in front of their faces, right, is sort of emphasized in this laughable manner as we get to hear Cleopas, the two disciples, basically give Jesus some education about his own identity. And so they say, let me tell you, this is Jesus of Nazareth we're talking about here. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people, And our chief priests, our leaders, they handed him over and condemned him to death. They crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Past tense. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The logic here, of course, is that salvation and redemption of God's people cannot take place through a prophet who had been rejected by his own people and even more had now been tortured and crucified by Rome. For these disciples, crucifixion and redemption are, they don't go together, they're irreconcilable. But if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you may remember Jesus saying a thing or two about this. In Luke 9, 44 through 45, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. Jesus had said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands, but they did not understand what this thing meant, and note here, it was hidden from them, so they could not grasp it. And again, in Luke 18, verse 31 through 34, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, spat, insulted, and spat upon, and after they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this, and note here, it was hidden from them, and they did not understand what he was talking about. Maybe this explains why the eyes of the two disciples were, re- were kept from recognizing Jesus in, front of, in, in, in their midst. Jesus had consistently taught them that if they wanted to know him, if they wanted to follow him, if they wanted to have a deep and abiding relationship with him, then they had to come to grips with the fact that his power and authority and salvation would be revealed in humility, suffering, even death on a cross. Let these words sink into your ears, Jesus had repeated to them. And yet the disciples had not come to grips with salvation and cross, with redemption and humble suffering, with Jesus' kingship, and a sacrificial way of life leading to death. If the disciples are going to see Jesus, to know and to experience him, then this is going to have to change. They are going to have to see and embrace that their Messiah is and remains the crucified one. Well, let's return to our text to hear the rest of the disciples' lesson to the stranger. Furthermore, they say to him, Besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things took place. More irony, of course, is Jesus foretold that God would raise him up from the dead precisely on the third day. And in addition to all of this, the disciples report to Jesus the events of the morning, the empty tomb, the vision that that they'd had of the angels, and the angels report who said he was alive, Peter finding the burial clothes, but the tomb empty, just like the women had said but notice it says, they did not see Jesus. That's the end of verse 24. Despite the testimony of the women, despite Jesus' own predictions about his death and resurrection, despite their own encounter with the journeying Jesus on the Emmaus Road, the disciples still do not see that this is the stranger, The stranger is Jesus in their midst. And in their statement about the women at the tomb in verse 24, they did not see him. They testify to their own inability to see and to understand Jesus. This is exactly the question that I raised at the beginning of the sermon, the question the disciples are wrestling with right now. We don't see Jesus. Where is he? How can we know him? So in response to their confusion, the stranger, the disguised Jesus, or hidden Jesus, rebukes them for their foolishness, for being, as you uh, see in verse 26 through 27, he calls them "they're slow of heart. They are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had declared. And so Jesus asks them, wasn't it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them all of the things about himself from the Old Testament scriptures. Now I would think surely at this point this will resolve the tension. Can you imagine? Jesus, surely Jesus, taking the disciples through an Old Testament biblical theology course on passages that relate to how God's Messiah must suffer and then be raised from the dead Surely that would bring the disciples to a recognition that the stranger in their midst is none other than Jesus. Imagine Jesus explaining to them, haven't you read what the prophets uh, Isaiah said about the Messiah? He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Do you never read that? What about the Psalms? Did you ever read the Psalms, right, where it, where it said the stone that the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone? And on and on it goes. And yet, despite the scripture lesson about God's Messiah, the disciples still do not see Jesus. I confess that there's a sense in which I can relate to the disciples here. Maybe you can as well. My library is filled with many wonderful books. I spend the majority of my time, it seems like, reading, studying, pondering God's Word, teaching it at Trinity and other contexts, and yet there are times when my theology or my study doesn't always feel as if it brings me close to Jesus in the way it should. Maybe you've had a similar experience, a rich Sunday school class or a clearly articulated sermon, time spent reading your favorite book of the Bible, and yet you don't feel personally close to Jesus, and you're asking, like the disciples, where is Jesus? Well, the tension remains unresolved for the disciples. How will they ever find him? How will they ever know him? What will it take to get them to see that this is Jesus? Well, the conversation is over. The disciples have gotten to their, they're at their destination. They're They're at Emmaus. They've seen, they've encountered, they've talked with Jesus, and yet they still haven't understood the identity of this journeying stranger. It's like one of those romantic movies or stories where you have these two estranged lovers. They're so close to finding each other, so close to being reunited with one another, and then the moment is over, something happens, and they remain estranged, unable to find their lover, unaware that they were so close. And so here, with the encounter over, the opportunity to experience Jesus having passed, Jesus starts to walk ahead, to continue the journey. But it's late. There's just a few more minutes of daylight left. The sun's going down. Journeying on these roads alone is not good. It's not desirable, maybe not safe. So the disciples, despite their sadness, despite their confusion over recent events, they open themselves and their home to the stranger. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, they urged him strongly. They said, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. Think about this for a minute. Despite their grief, their master, their beloved teacher, the one that they had hoped was going to redeem Israel, had just been killed. Despite potential concerns for their own safety, we don't know who this person is. Who is this stranger? Despite perplexity and confusion over the meaning of their own lives, we've given everything to following Jesus. Now what are we supposed to do? Despite all of this, hospitality to the vulnerable, traveling stranger replaces their own self-concern. Doubt, fear, confusion, grief, all of these things give way to welcoming the needy stranger into their own home. The biblical commandments that they were raised on, that the Torah had taught them, show kindness and welcome and care for the sojourner in your midst. The example of Abraham in Genesis 18 who welcomed the three divine visitors as they were passing by. These texts form them and trump their self-concern as they open themselves up and their homes to the stranger. Instead of using the excuses, I'm too busy and preoccupied with my own needs to care for this stranger. I'm not sure who this stranger is. I'm not sure whether he can be trusted. I don't know if we have enough food or drink, if anyone has been doing anything at home to prepare food or or drink for our stranger. All of these potential excuses, all of their emotional inadequacies, inadequacies give way to the simple welcome and care for the needy traveling stranger. And so verse 29 says Jesus takes them up on their offer. The risen, yet still disguised as stranger Jesus, goes into their, own, into their home. Now this is, if, you, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know that this is not, by no means the first time that Jesus has been hospitably welcomed within someone's home. In fact, within the Gospel of Luke, to show hospitality or welcome to Jesus and his disciples almost always has positive results. All right, Jesus forgives the sins of the sinful woman in Luke 7 and connects it with her lavish display of hospitality to him, something that Simon the Pharisee won't give to him. Jesus pronounces a blessing upon Mary when he's in the home of Mary and Martha as she's listening at his feet attentively to his words. Jesus bestows salvation upon Zacchaeus when he tells Zacchaeus, I must go into your home today. And then declares, salvation has come to this household. He too is a son of Abraham. So within the Gospel of Luke, hospitality to Jesus often results in some kind of establishment of relationship between Jesus and the host, the one offering welcome to Jesus. So we, as readers, might wonder at this point, what will happen now that Jesus is in the home of these two disciples? Well, the two disciples take Jesus to the dinner table. All's ready, the table is set, the food's prepared. Time now just to thank God for his provisions and enjoy the meal after these tumultuous events. But something strange happens. The stranger, the one who is the guest in the home, acts as if he were the host. And he takes hold of the bread, and he blesses it and breaks it and gives the bread to each one of them. Verse 31 says... The disciples are astonished. Their guest is now transformed into the host right in front of their eyes. The one who is here to receive from them as guest now is suddenly seen to be the giver of life and all good things as the host. Presumably, their minds might start to play flashbacks of the preceding months. They remember when a huge crowd had come to see Jesus And how the disciples wanted to send them home so that they could eat and regain their strength. There was simply too little to feed the crowd. But Jesus became the host to the huge multitude of people. He took the loaves and the fishes. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke the food. He gave them to the disciples and to set before the crowd in Luke 9. Peter had responded to Jesus after this and said, You, Jesus, are the Messiah of God. And Jesus didn't reject Peter's confession, but he immediately reminded Peter, he immediately reminded him that as Messiah he would be rejected and suffer and die, looking forward to the way in terms of which he would ultimately give food and drink to his people. And again, they remember maybe just a few days ago the meal that they had shared with Jesus. He had acted as their host. He had blessed and broken and distributed the bread But this time he had said that the bread signified his broken body and that the drink signified his shed blood. He had even told them to keep eating these meals as a way of remembering his presence among them. He had made it clear to them when they share these meals, when they eat, when they drink, they remember and celebrate Jesus' death and his sacrificial way of life. The one who had been moved downward. The one, he had said, who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? They say, of course, the one who reclines. He says, but I have been in your midst as the one who serves. So when the two returned to Jerusalem to find the 11 apostles, the rest of the disciples, they declared to everyone, and notice their statement, how Jesus had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pause here for a minute consider what we've seen in relation to our question, where is Jesus? Human testimony. The testimony of the women about the empty tomb has not opened the eyes of the disciples. A visual encounter between Jesus and themselves with their eyes, right? And an oral and an oral encounter with their mouth, with their ears, has not opened their eyes of the disciples to see that this is Jesus, Even hearing Jesus' authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures had not opened their eyes. The disciples' eyes are opened. That is, they have experienced, known, and encountered Jesus in their hospitality encounter with Jesus. In their act of bestowing welcome upon him, and in his subsequent then sharing of table fellowship with them, the disciples' eyes are opened and they see this is Jesus. Shared hospitality between Jesus and the disciples mysteriously communicates Jesus, the risen Jesus presence and reveals his identity to the disciples, thereby removing their blindness. So what does this mean? Why would Luke, master storyteller of the life of Jesus that he is, why would he end his gospel with a story like this? What does hospitality and shared table fellowship between Jesus and his disciples 2,000 years ago, what does that mean for us today? Let me conclude our time by look, sharing two reflections um, upon the meaning of this passage and what I think are some implications for our lives. One, the first one is focused on sort of the internal life of the body of Christ, The second one's uh, more oriented towards the church's ministry of evangelism and outreach. So, first one. Jesus is known and experienced and has continued to be known for the past 2,000 years in communities who celebrate his presence by eating Jesus-like meals in remembrance of him. Jesus' meals, the meals celebrated in the early church, in the book of Acts, were the means whereby the sinner, the outcast, even the enemy encountered God's hospitality and were then transformed into God's friend and family. In the gospel of Luke, these meals, and in the book of Acts, these meals are marked by joy, by the satisfaction of hunger, by a welcome to include all types of different people, and by a sense of the presence of the risen Jesus among them. In my view, this calls for the church to recommit itself to intentional times of fellowship with one another, with the expectation that, in obedience to both the example and the command of Jesus, the risen Jesus is powerfully present in our churches. So when we see here in our text that the disguised or the hidden Jesus is finally revealed and his identity is made known to his disciples in the context of shared hospitality, we have good reason that Jesus, uh, to believe that Jesus intends for his presence to be made known in communities who gather together as believers in Jesus, who sacrificially and generously share food and drink, time, our lives with one another, and that this is where we will encounter Jesus, because as Paul says, who are we? We are the body of Christ, his very members. This is where he continues to be known and encountered. This is why the church is not sort of an uh, an, an optional add-on. So how do we practice this? If we believe that the risen Jesus continues to share his saving presence through Jesus-like meals, then we may need to spend some time to reflect upon whether we have made space or time to eat, to share meals in community where we can celebrate and remember the risen Jesus. Uh, it was fun for me even just to hear your announcements. I don't know, obviously as an outsider, as a guest here who lives you know, in Chicago, I don't know how you're doing this, but to see, right, it seems as if there might already be some ways right, to connect this with what your church is already doing It could be old-fashioned potlucks. I grew up in western rural Iowa, and we had potlucks frequently after church. Opportunities for us to gather together in remembrance of Jesus, in obedience to gather together as the body of Christ to share fellowship with one another, to eat, to drink, to spend time with one another, and to form true and meaningful friendship. It might take the form of small groups or whatever it is, if you, you, you call them small groups, or some sort of intentional Bible study or gathering right, that takes place right, in a smaller smaller group. Um, I don't think we should think of small groups or Bible studies as sort of, again, these optional add-ons that we might join just for some ex- extra encouragement. Because if it's true as I've suggested I think Luke indicates, that Jesus is made known and experienced in communities who share hospitality and friendship and food and drink and their very lives with one another, then where else are you going to experience this and live this out if not in some type of intentional gathering together with fellow believers? And I can imagine that you can probably testify, many of you, that as you gather together with other believers, they become family to you. As you read scriptures, you pray together, maybe you share food and drink, maybe even resources to, with one another to care for one another, it's here right, that you encounter the life and, of the risen presence of Jesus in your midst. So if you're not in a community like this, but you want to know and experience Jesus, I would encourage you strongly to find a group, start a group. Uh, recommit yourself to making space for this. If you are leading a group already or are part of a group, it's wonderful, and I'd encourage you in light of the Gospel of Luke, to be expectant about the presence of the risen Jesus in your midst. He's with you. Share your lives. Share your resources. Eat and drink together in celebration of Jesus and what he did, and expect that you will know him and encounter him Uh, in your midst, in the life of the church. Secondly, focus more on the external or what it might look like in terms of evangelism and outreach. If food and drink and the opening up of your homes and lives reveals the presence of Jesus, then what better way to do evangelism and mission than by inviting those who are seeking God or want to know or need to know God into your homes? Or maybe even going into places where they may invite you. Uh, you, You might remember, maybe you remember from the book of Acts, how it was that the early church grew, how it reached unbelievers. It doesn't tell us that this was an intentional strategy or mission per se, but Luke in the book of Acts tells us that the early church in Acts 2 was gathering together for the breaking of bread, for prayer, devoted to the teaching of the apostles, sharing their resources with one another, caring for one another, having meals in each other's home with gladness and sincerity of heart, and that the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved every day. can read about this in Acts two through six. The early church is described as a community of friends. They have one heart, one soul. They generously care for one another. They spend time together. It's the church doing exactly what Jesus commanded them to do in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Acts is all about the way that the story of Jesus continues in the life of the early church, and one of the primary ways the story of Jesus continues is through the church, eating, drinking, sharing their lives together in remembrance of Jesus such that the church becomes a community of friends. A community of friends that is able to extend and invite and welcome others into their midst. This is a story that gets told somewhat frequently, so forgive me if you've heard it, but um, there's a contemporary sociologist um, who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he argued that one, he was trying to explore, like, how did Christianity become this tiny sect and then turn into this worldwide global movement within a couple of centuries, or a few centuries? One of his arguments is that those following Jesus were able to basically take over the Roman Empire in terms of the predominant religion as a direct result of their ministry of caring for for the sick, sharing their food and drink, even with the needy and destitute non-Christians. As worshipers of the Greek and Roman gods, as as these pagans experienced the welcome and the hospitality of these followers of Jesus, they experienced his life and his presence and were added among those to the number of those who were being saved. There are so many sociologists today that talk about our time being one of profound loneliness anxiety, disconnection, boredom, depression largely due to lack of meaningful relationships. What better gift can the church give to the world than friendship? A friendship that takes place among the followers of Jesus and seeks to invite others, right to encounter the risen presence of or the presence of the crucified and risen Jesus. The risen Jesus can be known and experienced today. He has tabernacled. He's made his home among us. He can be known quite simply and directly in communities like this one, who gather together in his name, who eat and drink, who sh- with one another, who share their lives, their time, their resources with one another. I trust all of us are in one way here looking for Jesus. Luke 24, at least one of its lessons gives to us, is a story uh, for us to learn about how we can find him. And the answer is maybe not exactly what we would have anticipated, but Jesus promises that he will be found and known by his people who open their lives and their very selves in ways that interrupts our selfish schedules, in ways that requires sometimes our time for the sake of others. And insist that even on our hardest days, we give people our true selves and not just a superficial pretense. In doing this, we will be with Jesus. We can experience His resurrection presence in our communities. And this is where Jesus promises us that we can and will know Him. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship You and we praise You. We give you glory and honor that you are a God who is alive, that Jesus is exalted, enthroned at your right hand, risen and alive and present with us as we seek to follow you and as we seek to worship you. For my brothers and sisters here at High Point Church, Lord, my prayer for them, Lord, for anyone here who is desperately seeking Jesus, I pray that they would find find him. For those who have a heart and a passion, to extend your kindness and your welcome to others who are looking. Lord, would you give them a fresh vision of ways in which they uh, may extend your welcome to others as well. Lord, we love you and we pray that the way of life that we see um, in the person of Jesus would be one that calls us to greater discipleship. And thank you for the word that you've given to us in Jesus' name. Amen.